At the beginning of COVID, I followed a wise impulse and asked a couple of close friends to prescribe books for me. I asked for books that were surprising or changed their points of view in some way. I was looking for new perspectives and stories that might help the COVID rut feel less severe. As a result, I've been reading a lot more since the pandemic started. And I think it's because I used it as an excuse to deliberately open new doors in my reading habits. In my conversation today, I'm chatting with David Risher, a guy who helped grow Amazon from a $15 million company to what it is today, and founder of the nonprofit World Reader, who, as a team, have opened those new doors through reading that I mentioned to more than 17 million kids globally. Since we talked, I've been thinking about what a privilege it is. Reading, I mean. I've been reading authors and genres that are pretty new to me lately, but it all started with access. And David and I talk about how, in spite of the digital age, accessing books is still an issue. According to UNESCO, in 2021, over 100 million kids and 700 million adults are non-literate. I've been thinking about Paulo Freire, the great Brazilian activist and educator who wrote, reading the word and learning how to write the word so one can later read it are preceded by learning how to write the world. That is, having the experience of changing the world and touching the world. Each time I read that quote, I learn more about all of the ways it holds meaning. And in the coming months, I have some great conversations coming your way about all types of literacy in the digital age. What's clear in what Freda offers is the direct connection between our individual experiences and the ways that reading and writing can be a tool for liberation. Before I turn you over to this episode, I wanted to mention one thing that I frequently tell my guests after the recording has ended, but that I realize it's been a while, if ever, that I've said it out loud to you. If like many of my guests, you're doing amazing work in research or practice that requires grant funding. You might be familiar with that part of the application that refers to dissemination, which asks a proposal writer to think about how they'll share what they've worked on with a wider audience. My point is this. If you've got a proposal underway or are currently working with funding and thinking about how to get the word out about your work, send me an email. I see this show as a celebration of the hard work that it takes to innovate and push these fields forward. If you have a hunch that no such thing can be a help to you working in an area of learning and equity in the digital age, let's talk. Enjoy this conversation with David Risher. This is No Such Thing, a podcast about learning in the digital age. I'm Mark Lesser. One of the gifts of this show is I get to do a lot of homework on people and their journey as a big part of my day job is thinking about how to support young people in a journey from most of my work has been sort of adolescence to uh, post-secondary kind of age. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's really fun to do homework uh, in reverse, you know, look at uh, folks who have um, accomplished things, who have been places, who have started one career, maybe 10 careers um, and go backwards from there. And we're talking about world reader and we're going to get into that, but I am actually curious to hear, maybe learn a little bit more about you. Um, I was hoping you would tell me about yourself as a reader. My question is when did that start and who are the people early on 
that you think, whether consciously or unconsciously, sort of weighed in on your direction to come back to literacy as a mission after your early career at Amazon and, and Microsoft and other places? Yeah. So, you know, I'm lucky in a sense because I can I can put my finger on it and it really involves my mother. When we were growing up, uh, my mother and father uh, divorced fairly early in my life. But uh, when my brother and I were growing up, you know, really, our sort of sanctuary was the library. It was where uh, our mother would drop us off on Saturdays when she'd go, you know, grocery shopping. Uh, so it sort of became the kind of the, the Saturday babysitter in a sense. And we'd come home with this big stack of books and we'd work our way through them uh, through the course of the week. And then the next week we'd do it again. And so, you know, I, I think of that, I was probably one of those few kids that when you know, I told my mom I was going to the library, I actually was going to the library. Right. So this was kind of it. And, you know, and I even look at some of the choices she made, you know, when she and my father uh, split, she became an encyclopedia salesperson for a while. This was in the day where, wow. right, world book encyclopedia, 1970s, door to door, she would go selling encyclopedias so that we could put, you know, have food on the table. But also after she sold, I think it was 15 sets, we got a set of our own. Wow. So, so reading and sort of this, this idea that, you know, reading is an escape, reading is a way to learn about, you know, things far, far bigger than, than yourself. This was foundational uh, for my growing up and it, and it, it sort of persists to this day. Uh, it's terrific. I was, it's so funny uh, that you bring up the library because I was thinking about my own kids in the library and, and my, my own kids are young. And, and one of the things that I was, um, I, I guess sort of subconsciously preparing for our conversation today, I was thinking about who I am as a parent, sort of fostering my own kids reading and, um, one of the things I was regretting about the last two years is they really have lost two years of library time and opportunity to sort of watch uh, mom or dad or, or you know, whoever's bringing them to the library sort of put a stack of books on the table and just sort of see, um, see what that journey can be. And uh, they get it at school and luckily have a, have a terrific school library this year, but obviously in, in the last couple of years have, have missed that. And, um, it's, it's, uh, nice to sort of journey there through your story. So, so you get a little older and I'm curious that, um, as a kid applying to Princeton to study literature in a much more serious way, um, you know, we're, still at a time in the world where there is a major gap in sort of global literacies. And I'm curious um, if you had a sense of what that was when you were a kid of that age. And, and if not, um, when did that happen along the way? You know, I really didn't. And I think that maybe reflects, you know, the reality of, of many people. You, you sort of project your experience uh, on others and and sort of imagine that that, that the things you're going through uh, are similar to what other people might be going through. Now, maybe you're a little luckier, maybe you have them at a bigger scale or a smaller scale, whatever it might be. But you sort of think that's the framework uh, that that everyone's got books in their lives and that everyone's got parents who sort of read to them or at least appreciate, you know, the importance of it. And people sort of deeply understand this. But in fact, um, it really wasn't until many years later, um, doing traveling with my own children, really, that it became so obvious, particularly as we went to Kenya and Ghana and 
India and parts of the world that are in a very, very different um, position from ours, that this is something you, you can't take for granted. And truthfully, this is something I'm still learning, right? Even here in the United States, you know, I think COVID shined a light in so many ways on the inequity that we have here. So anyway, short story is no, I, I of course, I understood that Princeton was a very special place and that, that my education was going to be very powerful for me. And I hope that would be true for other people as well. But it really, it really took me years to understand how big the gap was uh, around the world. Yeah. So, so you make your way eventually to Amazon and I would encourage, there will be links in the show notes to a little bit of your story. You're somebody who, um, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's, um, is it good fortune to have a nice robust Wikipedia page? I'm I'm not sure these days. I will, I will drop a whole bunch of links on uh, your bio in the show notes, but I'm curious about those early days at Amazon and just whether, especially, I know that the, you know, the sort of e-reader tech was not necessarily, um, you did lots of things at Amazon, uh, but I'm just curious whether that was part of the conversation then, whether, whether e-readers and that sort of um, explosion whether part of that conversation was about access and and whether that was was even on your radar at that point. So I joined Amazon because it was a bookstore. You know, when when I was I had been working at Microsoft, so I had fallen in love with technology over the prior six years. But really what got me out of Microsoft, where I was having the time of my life and it was a very interesting company, particularly in the 90s. In fact, I met my wife there. I mean, that whole separate yeah. story. But anyway, um, at the time, Amazon was a bookstore, and that was very exciting to me because that was sort of this amazing overlap between books, which I've been passionate about forever, and technology, which I've become passionate about. Um, so it seemed like the perfect fit. In the earliest days, so I joined right at the beginning of 1997, and at that point, I mean, Amazon was a tiny little company, $15.5 dollars yeah. in sales, um, you know, competing vigorously with Barnes & Noble, who was very sort of aggressively saying this is our territory and, and kind of how dare you and, and so forth and so on. So our real focus at the beginning was really just, frankly, staying alive, yeah. you know, staying alive. Uh, just, just, and, and so number one, and then number two, you know, Jeff had this notion of get big fast. And of course now it almost sounds quaint. I mean, Amazon is such a giant, but at the time he was very concerned that the company's brand and sort of skills would solidify only around a single category of books. Mm. And he was worried that um, that over time, you know, people really would want to come to a website and find and discover anything they wanted to buy online. That was his real vision. And, and in order for the economics to work and so forth and so on, you know, we sort of had to get busy there. So a lot of my early work was starting the music store and the video store, the toy store, the tool store. We thought of these as individual stores at the mm. time. That was that was really um, job one. And then and staying alive. But to your point, even as early as maybe it was 2000, I don't quite remember the date, um, but a guy named Martin Eberhardt came to, to um, visit with us. So Martin Eberhardt, funnily enough, is actually one of the founders of Tesla. It's not a name a lot of people know, Tesla, you know, the auto company. Mm -hmm. But Martin, at the time, was very focused on digital reading. And he had in his hand a an early, early e-reader, um, you know, and the technology was sort of awful and it didn't really make any sense. And you had to do crazy amounts of work to get a book onto your device and, yeah. and, and all these different things. 
but um, but we realized early on, uh, you know, we needed to take the meeting and understand it. Now, again, it was too early; didn't make any sense at the time, and it took years for Kindle to sort of come into its own. And yeah. many other people also tried similar things. But that was kind of the earliest I remember really bumping into that idea. Wow. Um. So, flash forward. I'm mm-hmm. I'm I want to hear about World Reader and um. Tell me about the sort of uh, the origin story. Tell me, tell me about the genesis of World Reader and um, and about the program that it eventually evolved into. Sure. So, um, you know, fast forward a couple of years after Amazon, I had left Amazon. Um, I actually went to teach at the University of Washington for a couple of years because that had been something that had been very interesting to me for many years. And then um, later, uh, my wife and our two daughters and I came up with this crazy idea of spending an entire year traveling around the world. Mm. Uh, We were going to be our kids' teachers. We were going to read stories from different parts of the world as we visited. Um, We were going to do some kind of charitable work as as we did. And so that was that kind of crystallized. So in 2008 to 2009, um, we did that. We spent a full year of going to 19 countries. Um, The last or maybe third to last country, let's say, we visited was Ecuador in South America, having spent time in Africa and Asia and Mm. even um, South Pacific and so forth. Um, Spent time in in Ecuador and at an Ecuadorian orphanage in Guayaquil, Ecuador, as we're walking out of the orphanage, the end of the day, I saw a building which sort of changed my life. It was a building which had a big padlock on it. And I asked the woman who ran the orphanage, why is that padlocked? And she said, look, that's our library. So you've already heard that's going to get me, you know, that's going to trigger me, mm, <laughs> I guess. To yeah. Word we say, right. And, and I said, well, what's going on? She said, look, the books take forever to get there. They come by boat. By the time they get here, they're out of date. Or maybe they started off as someone else's sort of junk, you know, an encyclopedia of theirs, but like mm. from the 70s or something that they wanted to get rid of. And so as a result, the girls have lost interest. And I looked at her and I said, that sounds awful. And of course, I'm reflecting on my own childhood and looking at my kids who are avid readers. And I said, can we take a look inside? And she said, you know, I think I've lost the key to that place. Once I heard that, wow. <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute, this makes no sense. You know, and, and by the way, again, I'm looking at my own daughters. We just spent the world, the year traveling, and each one of them had an early version of the Kindle, the, mm. the second of the Kindle because we were reading everywhere. And it just, you know, as people say, the penny dropped, you know, it was like, wait a minute, books can be, you know, delivered, uh, you know, as easily as you can make a phone call. Now, uh, the world is getting more and more technologically advanced. Um, meanwhile, we've got, you know, cut down trees that are made in paper, with paper, you know, locked in libraries like this just doesn't make any sense at all. So let's try to figure out an organization that can really take this idea of using technology and get kids reading all over the world. It's great. So, so, um, so where did you start? Right. Like, um, you could think of, uh, I could think of a dozen different ways you might get started with an enterprise like that. But, but what was your first, was your first, um, foray into this space, getting that building open or where did you start? (laughs) Yeah. You know what? So I think so much in life is this this funny overlap of kind of romance and practicality. Okay, so the romance for me is my great 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 grandfather uh, came from West Africa somewhere. I think it was Ghana. Could have been Nigeria. You know, twenty uh, three and Me doesn't get that precise when they send you the the, the data. Um, and I had been to the continent of Africa several times in my life, and I'd always thought I would love to do work in Africa, in part because. 
of my own, you know, sort of background. And in part because there's a sense of, oh my God, this is this continent of 1.4 billion people that just is, it felt like it's just a step behind. And so maybe there's a way to sort of, you know, boost it up. I mean, I know that sounds a little crazy, but sort of let's really figure out a way to kind of do something um, of significance and at, at a big scale. So that's the romance side. The practical side is I was living overseas at the time and uh, we happened to have a friend who had spent some time working, actually quite a lot of time working in Ghana uh, with orphanages there, and had turned those orphanages over to the government to use as schools. So this romance collided with practicality. Um, I called up my old friend, Steve Kessel, who worked at Amazon, who was the head of the Kindle program. I said, Steve, uh, is there some way you can give us, you know, 20 Kindles as sort of a donation and see if this crazy idea of using Kindles um, to help kids read, even in Ghana, even in a very difficult part of the world, uh, makes any sense. Um, Colin McKelvey, my co-founder, he and I, you know, spent a lot of time brainstorming on this idea. He actually had a lot of the early idea for this whole concept. Mm-hmm. Um, he was living in Barcelona as well. Our daughters were friends. So the two of us kind of got together. We met a third guy, Mike, uh, and we literally hustled, you know, 30, I think it was in the end, um, Kindles, uh, from Barcelona where they were sent to us, uh, where we loaded them with books into Ghana and worked in a sixth grade classroom there for a couple of weeks and really tried to debug the idea and see if it would work. And, uh, lo and behold, it did. It's incredible. So I have questions about that, but let's (laughs) fast forward to today. It grew from uh, how many Kindles did you start with? 20? Uh, It it was, uh, it was about 30 in that first classroom. So uh, it starts with 30 Kindles. Where, where are we today? (laughs) So, so, so we've grown a bit. So that was in 2010 in a single country, a single classroom in a single country in, um, in uh, West Africa. Now we reach about, we've reached about 19.7 million kids across Africa, India, the Middle East, Latin America, and now in the United States. And, um, you know, I, I don't even remember the number of books that kids have read now. I mean, it's in the tens, it may be, you know, 70 million plus books, something like this, all delivered digitally. And, and I should say books from all around the world. That's been one of the other real, um, areas of innovation for us. So anyway, yeah, we've grown quite a bit and and but we feel like we're just getting started. We got millions more to go. And do you is it reliant on the hardware at this at this stage or or is your focus as world readers focus more on um a platform uh that downloads to whatever hardware that then makes it easier for um for folks to access? You just described the, the sort of journey, um, you know, very succinctly. So when we started, we didn't want to assume that kids would have hardware, of course, right? So we said, let's, you know, get in the business of literally, you know, putting books on Kindles, um, interesting books, the right books, and then shipping them all over the world, um, establishing um, physical presence in many parts of the world so that we could actually help schools and libraries and other organizations really adopt this 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 sort of approach. That was the sort of early work we did. And it was foundational and super important, right? We couldn't make uh, assumptions about what people had and didn't have. And frankly, we thought also it was a sort of a sign of respect in a sense. We're sort of, we're, 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 we're trying to make sure that, that, that you've got everything you need to become a reader. Mm-hmm. But over time, starting in the, you know, 2013, 14, 15, it really began to become obvious to us that technology was gonna continue to advance and there would be a time, and we're getting right to that point, where you can almost assume everyone in the world has a cell phone. There are actually more cell phones on the planet now than there are people. I mean, it's it's extraordinary. So over the last five years, we've really evolved 
to an approach that we call the ABCD approach. The A is for apps, right? So we have apps that you can use to download our content and read our content with and so forth. The B continues to be for books, of course, and there are great books from all around the world. The C is for what we call continuous engagement because we recognize that just putting a book in a child's hand won't necessarily get them to read. Some kids are very motivated, but many are not. And so we have a set of activities and other engagement strategies that we can talk about. And then D is for data to help us understand what kids are reading, when they're reading, how much they're reading, and therefore how we can get them to read more. So that's really been the evolution, but that's 12 years. You know, that started from Kindle where we didn't have a lot of those capabilities yeah. and now yeah. it's moved to this, this kind of much more hardware agnostic um, you know, kind of virtualized approach that I think is is very in keeping with, you know, 2021 and, and, and beyond. Yeah. ABCD, um, brilliant. It's, <laughs> it, it gives me, it gives me agita that, uh, that it is, uh, <laughs> that I, I just, I think, I think it's a fantastic, um, simple approach in thinking about, you know, my, my own day job and thinking about the, all of the different ways we try to strategize, um, for reaching more young people. And, um, it's a, it's a wonderful, I know it took 12 years. It's not, it didn't <laughs> come off the top of your head as ABCD, but I think it's a brilliant, um, approach in how simply it looks like it looks at a sequence of uh practical ways to um that that you're seeing the the um the supports and interventions sort of take place over time i think it's it's outstanding so one of the things that as i started to sort of read up on world reader and better understand the course of how this came to be that came to mind for me right away. I, I worked for, uh, in I've worked in STEM education for a very long time, and and um, I thought very quickly of uh, an example that is kind of near and dear because I learned a lot about it um, very quickly, maybe fifteen years ago. So Nicholas Negroponte's uh, one laptop per child, which I don't know if that's a familiar one for you. That came to mind for me right away, and and there were there were a lot of things that the world learned from that project, mm -hmm. um, even if uh, I don't know if Negroponte himself would have considered it a, a huge success. Um, but I wonder whether that was an exemplar that you considered early on, and whether there are other exemplars that also. Um, inspired you even now? And I ask the question because I think that there are a lot of folks who um, who listen and think about a sort of, think about addressing global issues in education, right? Not just U.S. education issues, but, but in a lot of ways, sometimes it feels like there are a dearth of examples for um, where, where we learn from, like where's the precedent? And I think that's a brilliant one. Are there was that one you looked at? Are there others that you still think of as being sort of a gold standard for how to do it or how not to do it? <laughs> yeah, uh, for sure. Um, both, actually. So on One Laptop Per Child, we looked at that very, very closely and really drew some lessons both from what to do and, and what not to do. So that project, you know, it had grand ambitions. Uh, right, we were going to sort of blanket the world with these laptops, right? One laptop per child. Yeah. There were going to be $99. They were sort of custom built for the environment. At least that was the theory. They had um, software that was, it was you know, supposed to be well designed for, you know, kids all around the world and so yep. forth. 
you know, it had a crank so that you didn't need electricity, like all these things. That was sort of the ambition. The reality, though, um, didn't really uh, quite come to that. And I've actually met Nicholas Negroponte a couple of times, and we've, we've, we've talked about this at some length. They made some early decisions that I think even they, in retrospect, you know, might have done differently. First, they decided to use all of this proprietary hardware. Well, the problem with proprietary hardware, meaning they're designed it themselves, is you know they're not really riding any waves. They're kind of doing it all themselves. Mm. So they have to figure out a thousand things all on their own at sort of small scale to begin with. You know, and so if you look at how we used Kindle in the beginning, one of the great things about it is that was a well-developed product that already had hundreds of thousands, millions of customers. So a lot of that R&D work, we didn't have to do ourselves. That gave us a big, big boost. The second is they decided to use proprietary software. That kind of made some software companies kind of annoyed at them instead of, again, kind of piggybacking on other people. Mm-hmm. The third is they had sort of an approach that was kind of, uh, it was called constructionist. And it was kind of this notion that if you just give a child something, that child's creativity will sort of be unlocked. But in fact, the reality more often is that child needs some examples in his or her life, maybe from a teacher, from a parent, but they didn't really focus on that infrastructure. I would say that they were almost dismissive of the idea that teachers and other facilitators could really be a helpful part of this journey. This was a little bit more, you know, kind of disruptive, disintermediation, all these sorts of things. So I think you put all those together. And then the the last thing is they had almost sort of a top-down sales strategy. You know, it was kind of go and meet with the Minister of Education or Peru and, you know, get him very excited about it, and then that person would push it down. But, of course, so often the the -the on-the-ground reality is very different from what it looks like from, you know. So you put all those things together. Um, Our approach really turned out to be quite different, Um, you know, much more on the ground, much more bottoms up, as I say, even evolving, you know, away from a hardware approach to a much more, you know, sort of app-based approach. with, with, with. So a lot of our approach was, I would say, much more, collaborative and and um, let's say meeting people where they were as opposed to maybe where Nicholas Negroponte sort of aspired for them them to be. If you ask me who I think has done it incredibly well over the years, I'll use an example that might be a little surprising, um, but I think it's, I, I just have all the respect in the world for this organization. And it's uh, Sesame Workshop and Sesame Street. And I look at them, you know, back in 1969, they too saw a moment of technological change where televisions were coming into people's houses, not cell phones, but televisions. And they were looking at this device, you know, which up until then had sort of been a news and kind of adult entertainment device and saying, wait a minute, I wonder if this can be a device that actually helps children learn and become more empathetic. Mm. And so their focus, I respect them for so many reasons, you know, one, because of their early vision of how you know, technology can kind of be incorporated into people's lives yeah. in, a, in a helpful way. Number two, because they fairly early on decided to go global. You know, Sesame Workshop is now in, I think it's 100 countries. You know, it's localized. It's Gali Gali Simsim in India. You know, it's Sesame Square in Nigeria. It's got, you know, local actors. It's got local, you know, content, of course, of course. And then the third is early on, they realized, you know what? It's not just about, quote, book learning, unquote. It's also about empathy. And their focus to this day, all these years later, is not just around kind of, you know, numbers and letters, which, of course, it is, but also around kindness and empathy. And yeah. I think that combination has served them so well over the years that it really impresses me. Yeah. That's a brilliant example. Um, I love that. So thinking about that, thinking about, tell me tell me about your mission today. What What is the mission statement? What is, you know, for you all, what is the the North Star 
um, the way that for Sesame, it's been um, that that piece around um, empathy and and more. For us, we are all about getting kids to really experience a true love of reading. And so, and that in turn will unlock their own capacity to, you know, become their best selves and create ultimately a sort of more empathetic and connected world. And so let's sort of, you know, break each one of those down. First, look, reading is like a superpower for us. You ask the North Star, I, every presentation I give internally, I remind people reading is our North Star. It's this almost species level superpower that undergirds all of our education. It allows us to, you know, communicate over space and time, right? I can read a book written a hundred years ago, right? And and build on that knowledge, you know, yeah. with, with stuff. So it, it's incredible. And then if you look at human outcomes, everything from health to safety to, um, uh, you know, l- levels of poverty, you know, there, there are no, there are no wealthy countries that are also highly literate countries. Um, I'll go back to safety. There are organizations here in the United States that when they look at, um, prison sizes, these, these are, you know, construction companies that build prisons, you know, the, the, the lower the literacy rate, the bigger the prison they build. So mm-hmm. it just touches so much in our lives. So it's, so it's foundation. I probably don't have to go on about that. So that's kind of the, the, the concept. So then it's like, how can you make sure that as many people on this planet have access to that superpower and actively engage in it as possible so that they can become the, the people who help us, you know, deal with climate change in the next, you know, 100 years and, you know, figure out how to deal with the next pandemic and all of these problems that are going to be our problems someday. You know, you got to have, you know, kids who are their best selves today, yeah. you know, kind of getting in that mindset. So that's the idea. We look at a billion kids around the world who, whose potential is being held back through, you know, sort of low literacy levels, lack of, lack of good access to books and not being readers. And and we really want to help them, you know, achieve their their, their potential that way. Yeah. So, so I wonder as you think about yourself as a young social impact founder, right? Young, young in your experience, um, not as life goes, but as as a founder. <laughs> as life goes, but young in experience. Yeah. Uh, yeah, as a as a founder of a of a social enterprise. I wonder when when you look back to your early self who was trying to sort of think about that kind of impact, what are the mistakes you've made since that you would tell that early founder, here's here's how <laughs> not to have a global 19 million, um, you know, 19 million uh, young people engaged with World Reader is, is uh, enormous. But I, I can imagine along the way you've had some moments. Um, what would you tell your young self to to avoid if you had it to do over? Yeah, you know there are two things that um, that I think of uh, when you ask me that question. One is around kind of how to get to large scale, and the well, actually, I guess they both they both sort of are, right? I mean, look, let's let's step back for just thirty seconds. Nonprofits are in such a a, a strange position in a way because. There, we're trying to address the problems that the for-profit sector um, has overlooked or ignored because there's no market, you know, uh, not enough people who want to buy the product. The government sector has typically been unable to address adequately, often because the the sort of the returns 
are further out than than politicians, are, you know, sort of think, right? So education is a very good example of that, where you you educate a child today, and it might not be for ten years that that child becomes, or twenty years <laughs> you see the return on that. So 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 politicians sometimes have a hard time. Uh, staying in for the long term that way. So anyway, those problems then get left to the nonprofits to solve. So some of the world's most intractable, gigantic problems get get laid on the shoulders of organizations that are underfunded, under-resourced, and, and so forth. Okay, so 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 that's one thing. And and so now when you ask about mistakes that, that I made, I probably did not understand early enough that you can't just rely on philanthropy to solve these problems because now you're making the problem even harder. Now you're saying, oh, and by the way, just private philanthropists have to solve this world problem. So I probably earlier on would have tried to figure out a more sort of robust, almost business model that coupled some philanthropy with also some other revenue streams working with governments and so forth. That's what we're doing today, but it's taken us a while to get there. And it's, it's been, it's, it's, it's quite complicated to be honest. Uh, but I probably would have, you know, I'd advise people to think about that. Maybe not on day one, that's too early, but sometime in the first couple of years, instead of sort of, you know, after five or six years when we started to take that seriously, that was one. The second thing is a mistake that I think, you know, I'm probably not alone in making people. I've been lucky. You know, I've had some success in my life at Microsoft. I'm success in my life at Amazon. Both of those companies, you know, think big and, and globally, you know, immediately. Um, but you, you tend to forget that in order to go big, you sort of have to go deep first in one thing and really, really do it well and then expand it. And I think we early on in moving from Ghana to Kenya to India to you know uh, mm. the Middle East, we were probably too fast to expand in that direction, as opposed to really saying in the early days, let's really nail it in one or two countries and go deep. Now, my concern was if we did it in one or two countries, people would look at it and say, oh, that's a kind of cute experiment that works there, but it's never gonna work elsewhere. Yeah. And so we just have to fight that battle over and over again. But I think in retrospect, I would have been better served if we'd gone even deeper, um, because I think we'd still be at you know, 19 million kids now, but we would have figured some things out earlier and have, to, and have had to sort of rework a little bit less along the way and so forth. But anyway, these are, so so those would be my two, my, my two pieces of advice to my younger self. So each of the... Um... Each of the places that World Reader helps build access are really unique in their challenges. And you talked a little bit about this, that like people might argue that moving from Ecuador to India or India to, you know, that you'd have to sort of make the case every time that this is a scalable possibility. You know, to what extent have you focused on the the very divided infrastructure in those places? Um, is it a similar solution when you look at India versus uh, uh, someplace in South America, or does the approach and the infrastructure as a result um, vary there? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting. It's, it's, um, it's converging, I guess is what I would say. So if you look back 10 years ago, the, the sort of, let's just say the mobile network infrastructure was still quite varied around the world. You know, you had some countries Pardon me, that had really made a bet on on mobile technology. Um, Kenya being a fairly fairly famous example. Um, you had other countries that um, that that did not. But if you look today, and here I'm even talking about the United States, 
there's actually been a, a huge convergence. And it's really been driven by the fact that cell phones are just so incredibly useful to people. Yeah. I mean, they really are. They're, they're among families' most prized possessions all around the world. People might describe in different ways. You know, in, in, in India, but people might literally say that. This is my most prized possession. In the United States, people might not. But if you look at the amount of time people spend on their, their, their phones and, and how much of their life increasingly we're all sort of leading, you know, through these connected devices, you know, that's actually becoming quite similar um, around the world. I'll give you just two quick um, anecdotes. One is in India, we work with an organization called Reliance Geo. That's, um, they're a mobile network operator. And their whole strategy is basically to blanket the country with very inexpensive phones and great 4G coverage so that every single person, and this is, they're a, they're a very big for-profit company, frankly, gets sort of addicted to these services, you know, banking services and, you know, entertainment services, communication services, and so forth. And so our job there is to really argue for a seat at that table. Mm. We're on their devices now. We've been downloaded well over a million times, even on very, very inexpensive phones for you know what people could think of as bottom of the pyramid customers. In other words, people who can't afford very much. And we're saying, look, reading and education is just as foundational as your banking and as your you know uh, entertainment and as you know all the other things people do on on their phone. So that's been a big focus there. And we have hundreds of thousands of kids who read every month on our devices there. Here in the United States, where we've been working for a year, you can, you know, mostly you, you can't uh, assume that kids will have access to high speed Internet necessarily or computers in their house. Sure. But again, you can pretty much assume that everyone's got access to, to, to a phone. Um, and so we've seen remarkable things go on. And I'll give you just two quick examples. One has been in Appalachia, where we're working in Barber County, West Virginia, where kids there who literally these are the same kids who have to drive to the Walmart parking lot to sort of do their kind of Zoom type um, homework because this is during COVID because they don't have good Internet um, connectivity at home. But they can just on their phone read entire storybooks. And by the way, storybooks from all around the world. And we have hundreds of kids now every single week working with us in West, working with us, reading with us in West Virginia, reading about kids all over the world, um, you know, but literally from the privacy of their own home, just yeah. using their phone. Last example is on the Texas border. In the Texas border, there are um, detention centers. These are, for, these are for kids who've come across the border um, and have been separated from their parents. Um, we just got a story two weeks ago from a, uh, a leader of one of those centers that has distributed tablets for the kids to use during the time there. And uh, she told us that for the boys there, this is for young boys to ages 10 to 14, they have very little control over their days. But they reported to her that their reading time with our Booksmart application, that's the name of our app, Booksmart, um, is, is the best part of their day because it's when they're able to pick any book they want and make their own choices, you know, for at least an hour a day. So that sort of... Um, World we're, we're trying to create, I think, is just, uh, I'm, I just, I'm super proud of it and super excited about it. You know, it's interesting that it's been a year um, that you're, that you're serving the U.S. And um, I have a, a dozen questions I'd love to ask you about even just uh, figuring that out. But, um, <laughs> but here's, here's the question I've been dying to ask you since, since this interview became a possibility is, um, I wanted to ask you about this moment in time, right? So I'm curious how you see the opportunities that are uniquely on the table at this moment for closing a global divide that's now centuries old. Mm -hmm. And you can frame that 
any which way, but obviously there are, you know, the last two years have been um, uh, monumental in quite a few different ways. And I wonder if you look at it from the perspective of what the world needs, if you look at it from the perspective of where enterprise is and where the technology is, um, there are all of these things that are uh, that that collide at any given point in time, and this one is is unique in um, maybe that the intersection is quite as rich and textured as it is. Um, so, so I'm curious how you see this moment and and what the possibilities are. I mean, I think this is an incredibly important and exciting moment for a lot of the reasons you just alluded to. You know, first, look, you've got, again, what what holds us back almost, again, at, at the species level, um, it, it, it's going to be the, if, if we can't fully tap into the massive brain power of the, you know, seven plus billion people on this planet, then man, oh man, what a disappointment for us. <laughs> what, a, what, a, what a missed opportunity mm-hmm. if we can fully, fully, fully tap into it. It starts, you know, it really does start, you know, from childhood reading. Like if you don't get on that bus early, it's tough to tough get, you know, get on that that bus later. Okay. So that's been true for a while. What tools do we have today that we didn't have before? We do have this increasingly interconnected, you know, world of ours, you know, technologically through this gigantic thing. Think about those words, world wide web. I mean, again, they almost sound sort of quaint now. You you don't even think about that, but that's what we have. We have this world wide web that connects us all with technology. So then the question, so, and and it's going to get to all 7 billion people on the planet. That's, there's no question about that. So then the question becomes, okay, okay, but is it going to be for good or for evil? And right now we see examples of both every single day. And I'm not going to characterize, you know, Facebook only as evil or Snapchat only as evil or, you know, or, uh, or TikTok, of course, all that YouTube, I mean, people learn incredible skills on YouTube. People get inspired by TikTok, all sorts of things. But if we don't also have basic education and again i think reading is at the foundation of that as a sort of equal part of that of that of that mix again i think it's an enormous enormous missed opportunity and i think increasingly what will happen is 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 we as a sort of education sector will become irrelevant to kids mm. kids will spend more of their time you know we hear this word metaphor it's, it's sort of a goofy word but just think of it kind of um conceptually of you know here you and i are talking you know, using technology on opposite sides of the United States of America. So we're increasingly we're going to be spending more and more time in in a sort of hybrid and and more tech forward world. And if 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 we now as educators can't mm, successfully argue that we need to be part of that mix, then what we'll find is the kids will increasingly not because they want to, but just because we're not showing up as 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 a sector, you know, move on. And that's I think a huge huge missed opportunity. So yeah. super super excited about kind of where we are because we're at this interesting inflection point, and, and COVID kind of shined an extra light on on this. Um, but man oh man, if we don't take um, advantage of it, uh, then uh, you know I I uh, it'd be very disappointing. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. Two quick questions. One is. Uh, are audiobooks part of is is world reader potentially um, is that an avenue for the strategy part of the strategy moving forward? Yeah, I'm glad you asked. Yeah, originally, we weren't sure how to think about audiobooks, and then we realized pretty early on, you know, Kindles used to have this text to speech, you know, kind of kind of thing um, in a kind of funny way, and so anyway, um, 
very early on, we realized, you know what? If when 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 kids stumble on words, they see e i g h t and and can't sound them out themselves. It's really helpful to have uh, kind of audio backup. And then a lot of research has been done since that shows if you're both reading and listening to the same text, your your uh, comprehension certainly imp- improves, but so does your retention. So absolutely, we, um, we've experimented with audio around the edges. It's complicated from our rights issues and so forth and so on, yeah. but for sure, it's going to be part of it. We're if Just as we're hardware agnostic, we're sort of reading agnostic. Not that we want people only listening, but if people listen and use their eyes and, and use their imaginations at the same time, we're all for it. Outstanding. So um, last question is thinking back to your young self sitting in that library, mm. um, if you had an opportunity, let's say uh, World Reader licenses X, you know, um, uh, let's say a million books uh, yeah. in the coming couple of years, and you have the opportunity to narrate one, um, <laughs> what would be the book you'd want to read to uh, 17 or 20 or 25 million young people? Oh man, that's an awesome question that I have never ever been asked before. Um, you know, <laughs> so I guess I would just have to go back to a book that I remember being read, uh, you read from, read to by my mother. You know, and uh, I mean, I, you know, it might sound a little bit cliche, but I'd probably pick Goodnight Moon. Hmm. You know, that is, you know, I can still both from my own childhood, you know, I have a very clear memory of that, you know, great green room with a telephone and a red balloon and a picture of the cow jumping over the moon. I remember that book. I remember my mom reading me that book and my brother. uh, And I remember reading it to my own kids. So somehow, you know, it's not totally clear how, because it's a little bit of an odd book, but somehow that one sticks in my head so much that I have to, and and, and so many millions of kids uh, heads, I have to believe it's got some, some, some deep power to it that I'd like to share with uh, with millions. I can imagine it might actually that that might be one that would translate well, <laughs> right? Uh, I think scalable. I see where you're going. <laughs> right. Uh, outstanding, David. I'm so grateful for your time, and um, I am absolutely uh, rooting World Reader on. And uh, I hope you'll come back to the show at some point in the future, and and uh, let's talk about all of the growth in the in the coming year and all of the ways that World Reader has the opportunity to leverage this awesome moment that we're in that you described so well. Thanks, Mark. I really appreciate it. And listen, if, you're, if your um, listeners want to help us from a donation perspective, they can always visit World Reader. But more importantly, um, go to bebooksmart.com, bebooksmart.com uh, on, your, on your cell phone and take a look at the books we have. I think you'll enjoy them a lot. They're great for kids, but even adults, I think you'll find them kind of interesting as a way to sort of visit the world, uh, even if, you're, even if you're, you're locked up in your own house for a little bit. Awesome. Links to World Reader and bebooksmart.com are going to be in the show notes um, and absolutely part of our, our uh, push to share the episode. David, thank you again and uh, wish you a wonderful rest of your week. It's been a pleasure, Mark. Take care. For more info about advertising with us, sponsoring the show, or if you have story ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter, at M.A. Lesser. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy. A guest in episode zero, alumni of two bomber nations, Ithaca and the Bronx, New York, and engineer of digital things and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No such thing is produced by me. Mark Lesser, 
A learner like you and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org.